welcome to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Show. I'm your host, Yara. I'm here with the one and only Sarah today. And of course, our special guest today is Hala Jaber. Uh, she is our good friend. She's a Lebanese British journalist and a regular expert on our spaces on X. Uh, she also currently writes for the Sunday Times and she was awarded the Amnesty International Journalist of the Year Award in 2003. She also won Foreign Correspondent of the Year at the British Press Awards in 2005 and 2006 for her coverage of the Iraq War. And uh, her first book, Hezbollah, Born with a Vengeance, was published in 1997. And it describes the rise in the political agenda of Hezbollah against the background of Lebanese history from 1970 to 1997. So we'll be definitely touching the, on this throughout the segment. Welcome, Hala, how are you doing? Good evening, and thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm doing fine, and I hope you ladies are too. And uh... I will look forward to the session with you guys. Thank you so much. So let's jump right in here with the first question. Your, your book, Hezbollah, uh, explores the history and the rise of Hezbollah, as we know. So can you tell us a little bit about how the organization has evolved uh, since then? And how do you perceive the, its current role in the region? I mean, first, let's let's simplify it. Uh, Hezbollah came about or um, or grew or, or or was born as a result of the Israeli invasion in Lebanon in 1982. So if you want, the inception was because of that. Initially, it was a resistance group that uh, um, included several, they started all before the before 1982, they all started, well, during 1982, they all started as a Lebanese um, resistance. And Hezbollah then um, started preparing for its own initiative, which actually they declared in 1985. So the, officially the group uh, came about in 1985 when they declared their manifesto and they declared that they, you know, they are Hezbollah. And uh, their whole, their whole um, ethos was about, you know, uh, defending Lebanon, but also um, to, uh, to resist against the occupation. Israel had invaded Lebanon in 1982. And it was supposed to be during Ariel Sharon's uh, era, it was supposed to be a brief invasion um, to tackle what they refer to as the Palestinian uh, problem in Lebanon, uh, quote unquote, uh, Israeli terms. Um, but then it ended up actually driving throughout Lebanon and into the capital, Beirut. Lebanon was occupied for several months. Beirut was occupied for several months and it was actually under siege, etc., etc. And then um, so Hezbollah happened, um, started, the uh, resistance started in 1902 and uh, Hezbollah came about in 85. Um, like I said, the main reason is to um, resist the occupation and drive them out. It started as a small resistance uh, with, uh, compared to today anyway, with uh, very little means, but with men that believe that uh, they had the right to defend and they had the right to resist. And it grew over the years. It made mistakes, uh, like anybody does. Um, but the, 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 they had an ability, if you want, to assess, to look at their mistakes, to learn, and to readjust and to evolve. And that's why that's why they've become now a power to be reckoned with and a deterrence to Israel. Thank you so much. And just in your experience as a foreign correspondent, um, can you tell us a little bit how uh, your reporting on maybe similar movements has influenced your kind of broader understanding of uh, of the Middle East and, and conflict in the Middle East? I mean, if I've learned anything over the years is no, no army, no matter how large or how strong, can actually occupy um, a country 
and not have resistance. Um, and every country that is occupied has a resistance. Um, nobody uh, agrees, uh, you know, for 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 somebody else to just come and, and take a piece of their land. Um, if we look at, uh, like I said, I you know I was there from from its inception, if you want, and watched the move, uh, the the growth and the evolution of Hezbollah. But then after after that, also in Iraq, I saw a similar similarities happening in Iraq as well when the Americans came and uh, invaded and occupied uh, with the coalition. And you started having groups uh, on the ground, uh, various factions from uh, various sects, also developing themselves or um, um, growing into resistance. And then you had um, the resistance in Iraq that, that are under uh, various factions as well. But um, they have one main goal, which is to drive the Americans or the occupation at the time out of Iraq. Now, and and uh, uh, I mean, Palestinians, Palestinians have always been resisting pre Hezbollah and pre everybody because, you know, they, you know, historically, Palestinian land has been taken and historically um, they, they, they were fighting to regain um, their territories and also to have a country of their own. So Palestinian histories over the year has, has seen various forms and shapes of resistance under various factions and under various groups. Um, and then Hamas started happening as well. I mean, then you had the Intifada, Intifada number one, Intifada number two. Hamas was actually a group that uh, was initially supported and uh, even aided and, and, and financed by, uh, by the Israelis themselves um, in order to counter the PA. And because Israel did, really did not want to have um, a strong, um, well, did not want to have a, a Palestinian state full stop and definitely did not want the PA to be strong. So they've had Hamas, but when things got bad and um, and Hamas decided that it needs to turn into, into um, to have a wing, if you want, a, a proper uh, resistance wing, Hamas came about and Hamas is just an acronym uh, for, for the name. But um, the point is also most of these resisting groups in the, in the, in the region and what now is known as the axis of resistance. Um, they have also, up to, a, up to a large point, they have modeled themselves around um, uh, Hezbollah's uh, uh, growth and, and model. So, so Hamas over the years has been engaged with Hezbollah. They have coordinated, they have uh, worked together, they have uh, exchanged information, ideas, uh, experiences, technology, uh, support, and so on and so forth. So all these groups now look up to Hezbollah, if you want, as the, 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 you know, like the the the, the, the godfather, the the, the 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 you know the model that the father that we look up to, and they're also, um, you know, trying to 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 develop themselves into that kind of force. And Hamas now has grown into a force also to be reckoned with. I've lost your. It's actually okay. Me. <laughs> okay. So we've seen a, a gradual escalation between I, IOF and, and Hezbollah on the southern Lebanese border. I think we have actually have a video from yesterday. If, if Aria has that queued up, we can show it. Um, this is just something that Hezbollah uh, released themselves. Then um, excuse the watermark. See if he can get it up here. So what we do know is that they're, they've taken out the censors on the border and kind of destroyed Israel's vision or eyes, as they've said, that we've taken away our eyes. Um, we do know that Hezbollah has a lot of, of 
artillery and a great uh, ordnance uh, bank, but at what capacity are they currently operating right now? Um, we know that they're not operating at a full capacity, but is there like a percentage of like maybe they're operating at 25% of their actual ground operations capacity? Um, how much have we seen from them in this specific conflict? And what can you tell us about those escalations at the border and maybe where they will go and how they could potentially uh, shape the entire situation in the, that particular region? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not even sure that they've used 25% of their capacity. I think they're, you know, if, if I think I'm going to be generous and say, you know, maybe we've seen 10% of their capacity. There's a lot that Hezbollah is not declaring. There's a lot that's not using. It's too early to use. And it's not putting its cards on the table right from the beginning. This war could, could drag on for, for a long time. And uh, at the moment, there is no full weight, you know, full what people refer to as um, um, uh, an all-out war between between Lebanon, uh, between Hezbollah and Israel. Um, but there is a war ongoing since uh, the 8th of October, and it is basically uh, um, around areas that are close to the border, north Israel, close to the so uh, southern border of Lebanon. It is using artillery, um, uh, you know, up to a certain distance. Um, it is not using. I mean, it's got it's got um, it's got air defense. It's got uh, naval defense. It's got uh, long range uh, defense. It's got precision missile precision missiles. It's got uh, uh, supersonic uh, missiles. It's got quite a few things. And even they sometimes have shown in the little videos that they make in the videos that they make. They've shown little. You know, they've tantalized by showing little um, little things here and there to suggest or to say that you know. If you were to uh, launch a full a full war um, against uh, against Lebanon and against Hezbollah, we do have the capacity to respond. Yes, you may you you have the power when it comes to your F-16s and your and your tanks because those are things that Hezbollah does not have, and not even the Lebanese army does. Um, and we'll come to that in a second. But we we have the ability to actually defend ourselves from your F-16s and um, and from the Navy if they wanted to 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 shell or to bomb Lebanon. And we have missiles that can, you know, that can go far deep into Israel. And they've they've been very open about it in interviews. Uh, Said Nasrallah has always said, you know, how far deep they can go and that they can reach, you know, Haifa and beyond Haifa. That was his famous statement at the time. Um, so these are all messages that they actually exchange between them. Um, not directly, obviously, but through statements. There's always, you know, military messages going back and forth between the two sides. And each side now has, you know, after years of being at war with each other, they've developed this, um, if you want, this uh, psyche of, of of understanding what the messaging mean and, and what each side is trying to tell the other. Um, at the moment, um, I think the, the situation is as is, and I don't see it at the moment expanding beyond as in there's no all-out war between the two sides i don't think israel wants that it will not be able to deal with a second front it does not want a second front and definitely hezbollah does not want i don't think anybody in the world world really if you look at them or ask them do you want to go to war they'd say no preferably not but if push comes to shove if israel was to attack lebanon as in carry out a major um, preemptive strike then definitely hezbollah will have to defend itself and the country and 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 declare a full a full uh, a full a full on war uh, but for the time being it's uh, actually you know when you think about it since they started to now they're doing they're averaging between 10 and 15 or 16 um, attacks against the uh, israeli 
um, and uh, against the Israeli positions across the border from Lebanon. And they have concentrated mostly on military targets. So Hezbollah is not out there to kill civilians just for the hell of killing civilians. Most of what they've been doing, are mili mo most, of, most of their attacks, if not 99, well, I would say 99%, has been against the military. And yes, initially the surveillance, um, the towers, um, the spying, the devices, the, you know, the everything that will allow Israel to monitor that border even more because they were able to monitor every movement in that border. So these were very vital uh, for Hezbollah to take down so that their, their, um, their fighters can move uh, safer um, uh, and, and to more forward positions without being detected. And if need be, if they needed to, which they haven't, but if they needed to cross as well without being detected. So, um, but, uh, you know, when it comes to what they've been using, you know, they, they really haven't used the, the uh, let's say, the big, the big numbers that they have. And I don't think they will be using them just yet. And there's no need at the moment. They've been satisfied because they've been getting, you know, the, the, the rockets they've been using or the shells they've been using against tanks or, uh, you know, the artillery they've been using is actually doing the job that they wanted to do now or for Thank now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, and and based on that, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because um, there are conflicting reports about the number of deaths. So we have unconfirmed numbers right now uh, floating around between the, you know, 500 to 1000 mark. Uh, but I've heard reports of, you know, up to 3000 IOF soldiers um, now now neutralized. Whereas on Hezbollah's side, I've seen a much, much lower number. So around the 70 or so. So um, we know that obviously the clashes have been very intense but the numbers of casualties on the iof side they seem to be strategically missing from from the mainstream media your thoughts on that yes i just before we came on as well i think um i think it was al jazeera that put out that the the israeli the the idf had um, or uh, has informed the families of israelis it's informed 392 families of their losses and i'm assuming um, I mean, the way it was worded, worded I'm assuming that uh, those are uh, what Israel is declaring as soldiers um, and officers that have fallen. These are mainly in Gaza. These, the, these are numbers that uh, actually Hamas fighters have, uh, have killed in Gaza in combat with the Israeli soldiers, uh, whether it's face-to-face -face combat or close-quarter combat, or whether it's you know attacking their positions and their tanks and, and buildings that they're uh, holding up in. Um, uh, I think... Personally, I think the numbers, and we've seen this in the past um, from previous wars, they, Israel has a tendency not to declare immediately all the numbers, and they do they trickle them slowly on a, on a daily basis. If but we we we've we've come up with this formula basically, um, whereby usually whatever they declare, one gets one tends to multiply by four or five or three four, three between three and five, and that gives us a rough idea of what the total numbers are. Before we came on your um, on your space, I think um, um, there was um, a Palestinian from Jerusalem who said he was listening to the news. I think it was Channel Twelve, and some somebody was saying that the numbers at the moment uh, soldiers killed is running um uh, it's running about 3000 and about 15000 injured 
Um, but, he, you know, that's what he heard. But whoever was saying that, uh, an Israeli obviously was saying that, but they said that they couldn't say more and they could get into trouble for declaring these numbers. Now, one of the reasons also they don't declare big numbers is because it would impact the morale of the soldiers that are on the front line and that they're having to send in. And remember, a lot of these guys are young guys, you know, they're, they're reservists and, um, you know, they're, and uh, they're going basically into foreign territory. Gaza is very unknown for uh, to them. They don't know the ins and outs of it like Hamas does, and uh, so the whole thing is is quite um, is, is quite daunting if you want. But I I expect those numbers to be much higher from the Lebanese side as well. They're not declaring. Uh, they're declaring very little numbers, but I don't know what the last, what the latest numbers are. Um, but again, we are watching videos that are being put out by both uh, Hamas and by Hezbollah on a daily basis. If you want an end of the day account of the attacks that they've carried out, and you are seeing visually, basically. I mean, just before I came on, I was watching something somebody sent me um, that happened today or yesterday, but they put them out usually a few hours later or by the following day, and you're seeing Hamas fighters literally you know up to a tank and then they hit the tank and they and they either partially destroy it or totally destroy it now there are people in the tanks and israel is not telling us what 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 um, you know what injuries or whether they've incurred deaths in those there were other videos where you actually saw them attacking from from a bit of a distance attacking soldiers on the ground because you know they're monitoring them and they see them and then they attack them and you see soldiers falling down you know um getting killed again we don't know how much of all this israel is putting out but we know for sure they're not showing these videos um in their own space i mean people would you know, even Israelis, if they went into the Telegram channels, they would see them. But this is not something that they usually sort of broadcast or brag about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the ceasefire and the conflict. Um, we know that obviously there was this uh, recent ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas. Um, I'd love to know from you, Hala, how, how, how do you perceive the agreement, particularly regarding the exchange of hostages? Um, so there have been uh, a little bit of contradicting reports. Um, about how long these actual exchanges would take. And um, seems uh, pretty clear that Israel is gonna be uh, dragging out this process. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, as far as I understand it, the family members of the deceased are allowed to essentially uh, say, no, I don't agree with this, these hostages, which are, by the way, Palestinian women and children, uh, to be exchanged. So um, can you talk a little bit about that and how you perceive this whole ceasefire uh, right now? Yeah. Okay, well, to, to interpret the ceasefire, let's go back to the original um, um, con um, declarations that uh, Netanyahu did, you know, his aims, his goals um, for, for the attack that he carried out in Gaza. Um, obviously, first was to uh, revenge or avenge uh, the attack that happened uh, uh, in the enclaves around, around Gaza. But um, his main goal was to free find discover find discover and free the hostages that um hamas and other groups because everyone talks about hamas and the hostages but people forget that there are several palestinian groups sure hamas is the largest group there but it doesn't hold all the hostages other groups also hold smaller numbers of hostages either way um um uh, netanyahu declared that his main goal was to free and 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 uh, and retrieve the hostages or prisoners and second, to defeat and liquidize and eradicate um, the presence of Hamas. 
uh, Hamas, from, if you look back again, literally from within the first few days after the, the first attack, after they, uh, they, uh, they broke the barrier and, and did the incursion into the enclave, literally within days, Hamas said, roughly there are about 200 point something hostages that we're, we and other groups are holding. And the deal we want is we are happy to release them all, you know, as a wholesale package in one go, in return for every Palestinian, and we mean every Palestinian prisoner, man, woman, child, held in all Israeli prisons, and there's thousands of them. Or, and they gave another option, if you want, we're happy to do this exchange in stages. So we will release some, you will release some for as long as it takes. But this was offered to Israel literally within days of, uh, so we're talking for the first week, so we're talking five weeks ago. Netanyahu rejected the deal or ignored it, but definitely didn't go and went ahead believing that he can achieve his goals without having to go through this process. So as not to look like he's uh, curbed, you know, he's, he's given into Hamas's conditions. He's destroyed Gaza or a large sector of it. He's killed over 15,000 people, mainly women and children. He's orphaned kids. He's, he's eradicated entire families, you know, that are from, you know, families of 70 and 80 members of various generations, totally eradicated, totally wiped out, that they had to be removed from the, from the data registry, okay? Um, he's turned it into a rubble, into an uninhabitable place, and he's found not a single uh, hostage or prisoner yet. He's got no intelligence about their whereabouts. And he has not defeated Hamas that continues with an ability to fire rockets to this day against the enclave and further into Israel up to Tel Aviv. So after six weeks of this entire um, uh, attack with many war crimes committed on the part of Israel, uh, Netanyahu suddenly went back to the original deal that Hamas offered him and said, okay, let's exchange. And now we've got this, this process, which is they, uh, Gaza will be, uh, will be given four, uh, four or five days of what we call day-to-day -day, um, 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 humanitarian truce. It's not a ceasefire, it's a truce. So for the next four or five days, um, there will be a truce whereby the, uh, neither side will be, uh, will be fighting or attacking each other. Um, um, Israeli drones will have to stop. Um, people will be allowed to move back in uh, to go and, and check on their homes, whatever is left of those. So from south to north, a movement is allowed. These are the conditions that were laid out and agreed. And um, uh, huge amounts of um, um, humanitarian supplies allowed into Gaza, fuel, and Hamas will release 50 of the hostages, which are mainly women and children under the age of 19. In return, Israel will release 150 women and children, Palestinians, under the age of 19. Um, you see, many people also um, believe that just Hamas, Hamas took hostages for the sake of it or took prisoners for the sake of it. Um, aside from those that follow the news and are part of the region, but in the Western world, people woke up to the Palestinian issue and the Palestinian story and the Palestinian cause now. They don't know a lot of the background that you know, Israel actually has been imprisoning children, women, um, um, for no crime, um, with no legal uh, representation, no trials, and they can sit for years in prison, rotting away basically. So this was also one of the factors that eventually pushed Hamas to take these prisoners 
um, back to Gaza in order because president has shown that you know the only way to retrieve your your prisoner is to do an exchange and to do an exchange you need to have prisoners um, to do so so after all these weeks after Hamas offering them right from the beginning this offer that they rejected six weeks later despite being on the ground for the last three or four weeks Israel's come out with nothing and had to go back to Hamas's original deal and agree it and at least they're going for the partial one where you know it's going to be um, in bits and in, in, in bits and in, in bits rather than the whole number but what does that mean that means that i mean and hamas has really made no concessions i mean what has it done it's it's exactly what it offered them right from day one so and as far as hamas is concerned it's made no concession it's won on this point and as far as israel is concerned this is actually a, a, not a victory on the contrary it's a loss for it because it's showing that you know after everything you've done and considering that you're the uh, biggest uh, the, the strongest army and you were going to wipe out the hamas you know within days and get your hostages you failed to do any of that so you have to go back and agree to their terms and this is what we're this is the stage that we're at now you kind of answered my next question um in a way <laughs> <laughs> which was fine but cuz i feel the same way about this uh, the ceasefire. Um, I think that it's a victory for the resistance coalition. Um, I also, exactly what you said, I'm glad you brought it up about how they've made no concessions on the side of the, of Hamas. Uh, Israel has agreed to everything that they put out in the beginning, which is further proof that this ceasefire is actually a victory for the resistance. But on the other one, side- one, one more, hold on, sorry. One more thing. Also, they broke they broke Netanyahu's resolve and as far as he always said there will be no fuel I will not allow fuel to enter Gaza I will not allow supplies to enter Gaza even on those even on these two um, issues you know he's had to relent and fuel will be entering Gaza and, and and humanitarian aid will be entering Gaza so in effect like I said again Hamas has made no concession whatsoever it is Netanyahu that has had to agree to their terms and to concede to certain things I absolutely 100% agree. But now I want, and, and, I, and I know you will as well, to reflect on the past um, ceasefires that have gone into place in Gaza and between Israel and the resistance forces. And Israel doesn't have the greatest track record with ceasefires. Um, when we were in the space last night, and I literally said to one of my friends, I said, hey, I have good news and I have bad news. And it's the same news. There's a ceasefire. So it's like, well, while there's a reprieve for the Palestinians, and thankfully, thankful for that, that there will allegedly be no more uh, sorties over Gaza, doesn't this ceasefire work to the Israelis' advantage? Also taking into consideration that Israel will bomb up until the last minute uh, aggressively until the ceasefire takes, takes hold. And how long do you think the ceasefire will last? And will Israel observe this ceasefire? Um, while the conditions of the ceasefire uh, being met are advantageous to Hamas and the resistance, doesn't this give Israel more time to kind of soften the image, kind of uh, regroup and rearm and maybe try to take hold of the narrative that they've lost. Actually, you know what? Scratch that. I don't want to get into that because we're going to do journalism later. But doesn't this ceasefire um, kind of play into, isn't, doesn't this work to Israel's advantage? And what do you think is going to be the climate leading up to the ceasefire and during? Okay. Again, if we go past experience, um, you know, people would say, what's your source? The easiest way to answer that Israel's 
history in the past. That is my source. Israel will bomb the hell out of Gaza between tonight and tomorrow, 10 a.m., if that's when the ceasefire starts, or one minute before 10 a.m. That's what they usually do. We can predict that they do that because that's, that's, they've done that on every occasion. Um, will the ceasefire last? Well, before that, you said, you know, it's a reprieve. Uh, who, who benefits from it? I think both sides up to a point benefit from it. Um, Israel desperately need to regroup and to reassess and perhaps to replan how they're going to tackle the next stage of, of this war. Um, for many Palestinians, we're talking about 1.7, 1.7 internally displaced Palestinians. That is no small feat in a very small enclave. So you've moved 1.7 people, you know, Gaza is very small anyway, and you've moved them further into a much smaller geographical space. They also need to breathe. They've not had the chance to, to, to get out properly, to resupply. Many had to leave their homes with little, with nothing more than their, you know, the, the clothes they had on their backs. Temperatures are changing. It's getting wet. It's getting uh, wintry. It's getting cold. Um, they need food supplies. They need water supplies. They need, uh, they need lots of things. So it will, and they can't do it when they're under attack, when they're constantly under attack. So, so the four days will also allow for the Palestinian people to breathe. It will also allow for Hamas to breathe because any military cannot sustain this for days and weeks on end at the level that it's been. It's relentless. So from each side, it will allow them. Now, one can argue that this is not a great thing because Israel will have time to regroup and, 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 and um, you know, replan its, its stage. But at least for the civilians, which is very important, on the other hand, also for Hamas, you know, they may be able to regroup. But also, it's... I know people have been saying, what if Israel breaks it tomorrow? Well, our understanding is not all hostages are going to be released in one pack. So over four days, we have 50 that will be released or, yeah, 50 that they've claimed that, they, that they've announced it will be released. They're going to do them in batches. So every day, a number of Israelis um, that are being held by Hamas and other groups will be released in return for a number from the 150. So they're doing them like this. So every day, something will be released in return for, for the other side. Now, if Israel breaks um, this, uh, this truce, I'm not calling it a ceasefire because you know it's a truce, um, then it ends there. The rest of the hostages that are still being held will not be freed and vice versa. So I don't think it's in either side's interest to break this, the next four days truce, because each side wants to achieve at least, you know, uh, from the Palestinian side, they would like to get these women and children out. And from the Israeli side, they would like to even give to their society a victory of sort and having released 50 women and children who are also under, you know, they're being under attack because of the situation in Gaza. Um, they've been you know, Hamas, from what our understanding is from the statements they've made, you know, they're trying to keep them safe, but there have been, there has been um, from Hamas's declaration about 50 or 60 of them that have been killed um, uh, during the bombings. And again, not all, not all hostages are being held by Hamas. Some are being held by smaller groups and therefore may not be held in the necessary in the safest of places. So they are as, as vulnerable as the next Palestinian civilian in there when they're under attack. So a house they're being kept in could get bombed and they get killed. 
So this is also why you see that, you know, Israel in the last few days found two bodies around the Shifa hospital and Hamas had declared these two um, 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 that they died and um, they found them, they found one in the rubble, I think, or in a, in a, in a building and another one um, in another, you know, in, again, in, in um, I think it was in near, near, near Shifa hospital. Um, and previously they found one under the rubble. So I, I don't see that it's going to be beneficial for either side at the moment to, to break this truce. Now, Israel has also said if everything works out in the next four days, as in everything goes smoothly according to the plan, they may be happy to extend it for another few days in order to get more prisoners. So we would have, you know, 50 from the youngest to the 19 age, and then you go a little bit further with the ages to get more prisoners out, more hostages out there. There is a batch that's being held that are military, pure soldiers, officers. Those at the moment are not part of this equation. At the moment, the equation is civilians, I believe. So I'll just ask it anyway, since we're still on the topic. We actually discussed this last night. We're we're entering into a holiday into in the United States. So today, tomorrow, Friday, and the weekend is sort of a of a holiday here, Thanksgiving, um, for our well, happy thank happy Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs> <Don't celebrate. laughs> but uh, um, for the people that might not know, Thanksgiving is a very uh, family centric holiday where we always like to joke and say that's where the family fights start and that's where all the current news is kind of discussed. And somebody brought a really good point up last night. They said um, Israel is really losing the information war here um, in America. They are losing it even on our mainstream media. And someone brought up the point that because they're losing so badly, losing the narrative and losing in, in the press and in terms of international opinion, that they uh, strategically placed this uh, ceasefire across the holiday to kind of be like, oh, thank God these... Um, the conflict in Palestine has died down over the Thanksgiving holiday kind of thing. And, and, and I, while that's kind of like, Oh, do you think that that could be a possibility that now while the ceasefire has gone, Israel could use this as a strategic way to kind of like hit the pause button, try to get their narrative back together. I don't think that they will, but do you think that there's some sort of, of truth to that? I mean, I, I'm, I don't know. I can't talk on behalf of the Americans or the Israelis, but I can I can see why, you know, even the United States politicians and president would not want this issue being dragged over, like you said, over Thanksgiving, which is which, as you say, is is, is huge in, in the U.S. And, um, you know, they, they don't want, you know, news of um, of more. Um, attacks, deaths, destruction, and and you, you know people people blaming um, the Amer you know they they want a little bit of, of of a break from it all, and especially over this this period, which uh, you know which which is similar to Christmas, but it's ahead of Christmas, but it's another you know it's the first Christmas in the in the states if you want, so I can understand that. I mean, as far as the Israelis are concerned, I don't see how that's happening unless they've been pressured into it, because I don't think in Israel you know they're celebrating Thanksgiving there. Um, but this, but the, but the, but the, the, the thing is, you know, it's crazy if that's one of the reasons or one of the, one of the factors that has actually brought this to happen now, you know, within this period of time where it's, it's coincide, it, either it's a coincidence or it's intentional happening around the Thanksgiving. You see, if it is, then it's, it's actually pretty sad that for their own Thanksgiving celebration. So it shows that they have the ability to stop a war when and if they want. But because it's their own celebration, they can do that now 
but if it wasn't, you know, they, they, they're happy to let it go. So I'll, you know, I, I still sometimes try and believe that there is humanity somewhere. And I'd like to think, you know, uh, not be that cynical to think that that's the reason for it. Um, humanity but, doesn't exist in Israel. I know, I know. I would really like to. No, not in Israel. <laughs> the reason why I also bring it up is because these sort of proxy states have started adopting our holidays. So I think maybe because there's a huge contingent of American and Israeli citizens, dual citizens that that holiday is also celebrated in Israel. It's also celebrated in Ukraine. So it kind of gives you an idea of these proxy states and how they do take our holidays into consideration when deciding what they do. I mean, y Ukraine has done multiple times where they've like uh, done like uh, arms or done like breaks, fire breaks and um, other things for our holidays. It's very, very bizarre. And I and, and because we know how irrational and ridiculous Israel is, that's why I didn't put it past them. And I decided to ask the question because I'm like, they're crazy enough to take this into consideration. So that's why I well, even it. even 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 so then that's a very sad sad day that <laughs> on account of that they're willing to stop a war you know so so really on an on any other day palestinian lives does not matter um palestinian does not do not matter um you know we can go they can go and bomb them anytime they want but god forbid you know they need to sit around the table and have some turkey god forbid on that day this is happening so let's 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 uh, freeze the war put it put it on the shelf for a few days until we have our celebration and then go back to killing them i Correct. mean whichever way which well whichever if you look at it that way it's it's actually even i mean when I say it's it's horrifying, I shouldn't be surprised because you know the whole six weeks has been horrifying, you know. Um, but the, but the good thing also that's come out of this, yes, at a very high price to the Palestinian. But you know, let's let's be frank here. Israel's image has been damaged beyond repair for the time being. It's going to take a long time for it to be repaired. You know, they've come across as, you know, they used to be the victims. Now they're the oppressors. The people that were victimized in their history have now turned to victimizing. You know, they've recreated another Holocaust. In the, during the Holocaust, people would say, countries would say, but we didn't know what's happening. Well, now we all know because we're watching it live on our TVs. You know, it's in real time. And we can't turn our heads and say, oh, but we didn't know because we do know. So those countries are responsible for what's going on. Um, but so Israel's image and the West has been shattered as, you know, um, they, they, you know they're, they're inhumane, basically. Uh, the barbarity of it, um, the Israeli might, you know, we are the most invisible army in the world. That's been shattered. You know, when you look at it, at the end of the day, you're talking about a bunch of um, of guerrillas, you know, I mean, and no, 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 I don't mean it in any offensive way, but we have a way sometimes in Arabic, in a jokey way, where we want to say, we want to say, you know, want to describe them, say, you know, people with slippers and tennis shoes, basically, you know, a bunch like that is taken on the might of the Israeli military and has held them, you know, has held forth for the last six weeks. They've not, they've not been defeated. So that's just, that's saying something about Hamas, but it's also saying something about the, the might of the Israeli army. Um, their humanity has been shattered. Their credibility has been shattered. I mean, look at all those PR videos. I mean, the third rated audio, audios and, and videos they've been doing. Um, their, their, um, their intelligence services were shattered on October 7th when you know, that, that breach happened and they were unaware of the whole thing. Um, so when you look at it, Israel has been, you know, it's not just military, uh, even if they were to win this war military, whichever way you define that win or victory, you know, they really haven't won. They've lost a lot um, because 
you know, they, they, they say they're the most moral army in the world. I mean, that sentence alone, you know, freaks someone out because what they've proven to be is the most immoral army in the world with the way they've been bombing civilians. They've had politicians come out and describe Palestinians as, you know, uh, hum um, uh, sorry, dehumanize them as animals and lower than animals. Um, they, they've, they've called on eradicating them. They've called on nuking them. They've called, yesterday there was, you know, former security um, um, oh god my head um, uh, former national security security head who ran an op-ed in a, in a major Israeli paper saying, you know, it will be better, you know, people, uh, the humanitarian organization, the world is worrying about the creation of, you know, um, uh, epidemics and diseases in, in, in Gaza. Well, actually, that's, we shouldn't shy away from that. That's a good thing. We can get rid of most of them that way without engaging our soldiers or losing our soldiers, let them die that way. I mean, who calls for that? Hello, I, I, yeah, my, the, who calls for that, you know? There was the former Israeli interior minister that um, just 10 hours ago um, said, after we turn Khan Yunus into a soccer field, we need to take advantage of the destruction to tell the countries that each of them should take a quota. It can be 20 or 50K. We need all 2 million to leave. That's the solution for Gaza. I mean, it, it, who, how is it possible that they are so openly and brazenly calling for the for the the elimination, the destruction um, of all of Gaza and all, all its citizens. I mean, how is this possible in, in today's media? It's, it's possible because Israel has always been the spoiled, the spoiled um, um, child of the West on account of the, of the historic um, um, uh, injustice and, and, and uh, you know, the Holocaust that happened, for, uh, you know, uh, against, against the, the, the Jews, if you want, um, because that's what it was at the time. Um, because of that, and because the world was late in, you know, in, in getting its head together and getting together, you know, to save them. Um, but this has been held against the rest of the world, and Israel uses it and uses the victim card anytime and at every, every every time it needs it, it uses this card as you know we're the victims here and people are after us and we're going to go to another. Well, hold on a second. The world has been paying that debt forever since then, and I think that debt has been paid, and Israel is no longer the victim, despite that card that it tried to dan dangle in front of everybody. Israel has now turned from the victim and, and to, to, to the oppressor. And by the way, let's differentiate. We're not talking here about the Jews themselves. We're talking about the Zionists that, that make or that form most of what Israel is as a state now. So let's be very clear. So um, yes, I, I'm not surprised that they're saying this. This was a dream of theirs. You know, they're, they're, they're going on about, you know, from the river to the Nile. Whereas this country is, whereas the Zionist mantra has always been, you know, um, from the Euphorate to the, to, uh, to, uh, to, to the Nile. So, you know, they have, they have aspirations they, in, in, in the region. If it's down to the Zionists, they would like to take other lands, Lebanon, including Syria, including you know, Iraq, and, and, and create this greater Israel that they see as their homeland. And trying to move 2.4 million Palestinians or to evict them, literally, that's what it is, evict them from their territory, from their lands, having performed a first Nakba where they evicted 800,000 in those days, 800,000 plus in those days. Well, that is a Holocaust. That is that is ethnic cleansing. That is uh, internationally um, 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 illegal um, under every international law um, and under Geneva Conventions. 
Um, and if they think that the Palestinians this time are going to abide by that, then they've got something else coming. That no Palestinian is going to leave that uh, that land. No Arab country is going to take those people, whether the quota is one or ten or twenty thousand. Arab countries that took Palestinian refugees in the past and still have them to this day and, uh, you know, have learned the hard way that Israel, whatever the promises of the world at the time, you know, the right of return is not being granted to the Palestinians. And no one is going to repeat this, this mistake again. They, it's not about having the Palestinians or not. It's about they will not allow for the Palestinians to be eradicated again and kicked out of the country again and turned into refugees one more time in history. This cannot be accepted. No, absolutely not. And I wanted to talk to you as well about the outrageous, uh, never before actually seen numbers of journalists murdered in cold blood by Israel uh, since October 7th. So to date, the numbers are at 60 Palestinian journalists and three now Lebanese journalists that have been killed in these airstrikes. So um, Hala, considering the consistent risks that journalists are facing right now, it might be one of the most dangerous careers uh, at all right now. Uh, why do you think that it's acceptable that there's such a notable absence uh, of international intervention or, or, or efforts to protect journalists in the conflict zone? Um, we have a couple of uh, pictures here that maybe we could bring up of the two Lebanese journalists that were uh, killed yesterday, Farah Omar and Rabi Al-Mimari, I hope I say that correctly. They were wearing press vests and their car clearly had the word press on it. So how can they so directly and intentionally murder journalists that are trying to do their jobs? And how can this internationally not cause more outrage? And I guess a follow-up question is, could journalists maybe across the world lead, you know, sort of an in initiative here to create kind of a, a global campaign aimed at safeguarding uh, these journalists uh, reporting, reporting from Palestine or from Lebanon? Okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I am a journalist myself, um, been one forever, um, as far as I, you know, I can remember in my professional career anyway. And, um, and I remember when we first started, you know, we didn't even have, I mean, th this thing about flat jackets and helmets did not exist, you know, only the army wore those. You know, it was not, it, it was inconceivable for any journalist. We, we didn't, we used to go to front lines as well. I mean, Lebanon was, was occupied. We had the Israelis, they were fighting and we were on front lines, you know, and without, without this kind of protection, but we never felt in those days that journalists were targeted. Sure, journalists got killed, but you got killed being in the right, uh, sorry, in the wrong place at the, you know, the right, the wrong time, the wrong place, et cetera, et cetera. But as, as, you know, as the years came and, you know, from Iraq onwards, you know, or some, now journalists are becoming the target in particular in in um, in areas like gaza in areas like um like um iraq as well when we were there and but as far as the israelis are concerned and as far as the the rest of the world i mean like i said i was a journalist and it's sad to see that you know um i remember when marie corbin was killed and she was um killed in while covering syria and i remember um I was actually off work because I had lost my husband uh, like 50 days before that. And I was in mourning and I was at my parents' home in Beirut, um, you know, just to get myself together after that. And I remember waking up and reading the news that Mary Corbin was killed in Syria. So I, I checked with the office and they said, it looks like it. And then I made arrangements to go and collect her body and uh, it took weeks to do that, but we managed to do it. 
and fly her out and identify her, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Marie was not just a colleague; she was a friend as well. And I've never spoken about this publicly for reasons. Um, however, there was so much coverage, and Marie was a big name, and Marie was one of the greatest journalists, and Marie was was you know a fantastic journalist, and um, you know whichever way you want to look. And she, and yes, she was known and she was famous, but the media the coverage about marie's death was just wow amazing beyond beyond you know and now i come and I, and i'm watching i'm sitting here watching all this happening um and i'm watching 60 palestinians 60 plus actually because in the last two days since the 60 there's been another two or three from gaza that have been killed so we're looking probably at 63 now um aside from the lebanese ones I'm looking at 60 plus Palestinians, journalists, killed in broad daylight, again, under the watch of everybody, in real time. And they, they are, yes, they make the news, but they make, you know, an item of news. There's no outrage. There's no the world gets together and, and demands, you know, to find the culprits like they did in Syria. There are no sanctions because they killed um you know uh, imposed because you know this is called you know murder um there's nothing of the sort it's just an, a news item and by tomorrow it's forgotten and i'll tell you what they're locals they're natives they're brown skills and they don't matter as far as the rest of the world is concerned if i mean Fifteen thousand Palestinians have not mattered. So why are we surprised that the sixty journalists matter? Yes, they do a profession. Journalism is not a crime, and everyone that dies, I feel a piece of me shatters inside because this is my profession. This is me. This could be me or any of my colleagues, and I wouldn't want it on anyone because we are there on those front lines, not because we really like to take danger or to experience it, but because we are bringing you. We hope we're bringing you a part of the truth or, or a side of the truth so that, you know, you guys who are sitting at home watching TV at night, you get it from us and we're not supposed to be killed like this. Then, so they're being targeted. Israel does not like the fact that these journalists, like I said earlier, the coverage has been real. It's been real time. It's on our live televisions every single day, or at least not the television, at least on our social media on our phones, on Twitter, on Spaces, because the Palestinians on the ground now hold their cameras and film everything and, and literally send it to us directly. You think Israel wants us to see this? The outrage, the, the public outrage has happened in the world, you know, the demonstrations, the protests from the UK to the States to all around every country in the world that is allowed, okay? Why did this happen? Because people are waking up and are actually seeing it. They're seeing these images no human being can accept watching babies you know being killed right in front of their eyes no human being can accept watching children being slaughtered no human being can watch seeing gaza being you know eradicated and people killed like it's like an abattoir literally you know no one can accept that so people are taken to the streets because so who is delivering this message to them? It's the it's the Palestinian journalists with their life with the live feed and the live television who are risking their lives to send us these images because we as international correspondents cannot be there. Or as journalists, Western journalists cannot be inside. So we're relying on them. They're showing us firsthand what's happening. They're our they're our eyewitnesses, and they're not lying because you cannot, these images are not a lie, okay? 
So they're being targeted. So it shuts down. So we don't get to see this truth. So we moved to Lebanon, three journalists that were covering. And on both occasions, the areas they were at was not, there were no skirmishes happening. There was no fighting going on between the sides. And Israel targeted those journalists. And on both occasions, killed three journalists. Yesterday, it was Al-Mayadeen. Well, Israel has a big issue with Mayadeen because they, they regard Mayadeen as a close ally of Hezbollah and Iran. So they eliminated, and they've actually recently banned or trying to stop uh, Mayadeen from broadcasting in, um, in, um, in the Palestinian, well, sorry, in Israel and, and, and some of the territories that they control. So, and we know from, again, let's not take our words. We, we would always know that it's a target attack, but people don't believe it. But some, an official in, in the Pentagon who does the military side, who spoke to the New York Times yesterday, and he said this particular drone doesn't exist with the Lebanese army. We'll come back to I keep on saying we'll come back to the Lebanese army in a minute. But actually, they, we don't have it in Lebanon. So this is a drone that came from Israel. They have it. And it's actually the worst part of it. It's a drone where they, they can actually see what the target is. They can monitor it. They can see it. And if they want, they can, they can abort the, the attack. But they chose not to. So that means they were targeted. And yes, it's to shut down us getting first-hand news, first-hand accounts from people on the ground. That's how I interpret it. And no one is going to convince us. You know, you can kill a journalist by mistake. And this, and this happens. None of us that go to, that have covered war fronts um, guarantee that we will always be safe. We know we're taking a risk. We understand that and we accept it. And we try on the ground to judge how much of the risk we take. And we know sometimes we, will, you know, we may be shot, we may be injured, or we can die. But we don't go on the front line thinking we're going to be targeted, and it's not acceptable. We're not there to be targeted. I'm sorry, yes. I speak passionately about it. No, of course, I, I completely understand, Hala. I'm, it's it's absolutely unacceptable, and you're completely right. I think they they've done a, a phenomenal campaign to dehumanize Palestinians to such an extent where just nobody matters, everyone's fair game. Um, I've never seen this in my life. Uh, so many journalists killed in such a short amount of time. So it really is, it's very heartbreaking because as you said, journalism is not a crime. Um, talking about media bias, um, have you seen this kind of uh, amount of propaganda just being spewed out by Israel and debunked in, in real time as it has uh, ever before? Um, because it's it's just absolutely insane. I, I don't even understand how we have 60 or more uh, news stories that have come out that have then been debunked and the world still can't see what's happening. I mean, is it willful ignorance? What is it? No, certainly it's not ignorance. Yeah, I've seen. I don't think we've seen it as much. I think, you see, again, in the past, before social media and before X and spaces and all that, um, it wasn't, we didn't, you know, in, in the earlier days, there wasn't as much um, social media. So you didn't get to see much, except, like I said, the journalists that are on the ground, with, with whatever war zone they're covering or whatever a story they're covering, you read them in newspapers. That was it. You read them in newspapers, got them on your television, you know, BBC, ITV, Channel 4. I'm talking British here, I, you know, your version in the States or whatever, CNN, et cetera, et cetera. Now you have social media and, um, and the, you know, the narratives, you know, Israel seems to have fallen back. In the past, actually, whatever Israel said was taken as, you know, gospel. Israel said, you know, we, uh, they're terrorists. Fine, 
the terrorists. Israel said we captured, um, you know, a thousand, a thousand um, terrorists. Yes, you captured a thousand terrorists. Now you have social media, you have independent media. Um, you have people that, you have a generation that actually does not trust the mainstream media anymore because most of it follows a narrative. And most of it is actually, you know, too scared to go out bluntly and say, you know, actually, no, Israel is wrong on this occasion. So you have independent journalism, you have, um, you have social media where people are, are looking, searching for alternative views, alternative sources, and actually reading the history a bit more and, and watching and seeing. I mean, you know, you cannot, you know, the images alone tell, us, tell you a story. So, so Israel is losing the PR, but the problem is I think in its head, it's kind of stuck somewhere. It's like in a time warp somewhere and it hasn't developed it because I mean, some of these things that they've put out, I mean, seriously, if it wasn't so sad, if it wasn't so funny, it, I mean, it wasn't so sad, it's funny because it is funny. I mean, it reminds me of Iraq when we had, um, everybody made fun of him. Um, what was his name? Um, Comical Ali, who stood in front of us, literally all of us, the journalists, and saying, you know, no, uh, the Americans have not occupied Baghdad and the tanks were literally behind him. I mean, this is exactly the kind of same similarity that he's, that the Israelis are doing with their audios that, you know, they bring, they bring these, uh, you know, the, there's an actress that does, you know, this video that they did about the hospital. And I mean, they can't even get the accent. You know, we, we are Arabs, we know accents, we know the different dialects in Palestine or Lebanon or Syria, et cetera, et cetera. We can tell who's saying what. Um, or the audios, you know, oh, I mean, Hamas that undertook a huge incursion into Israel that took years to plan, right? It's two guys are going to talk on the phone and he's going to tell the other one, by the way, it's behind you in the cemetery. I mean, some of it just, it's logic. It's a five-year-old with, with, with debunk it, let alone people who know a little bit better. So they've fallen behind. Their media narratives failed as well. And, um, and the sad part is, no, I don't think that the Western governments do not know this. They're not ignorant. Let's, let's be very clear. You know, politicians are not that, I mean, some of them are, but they're not all stupid. And they have advisors and experts around them. So they have no excuse whatsoever to pretend ignorance if that's the case. But they want to ignore it because, again, they are supporting Israel. They have said it right from day one. They stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel. Israel has the right to defend itself. Well, guess what? Yes, everybody in, in life has the right to defend themselves. But the difference between defending yourself and an open license to kill. And that's what they gave Israel, a free reign to go and carry out a slaughter. And they can't rein her now, or they don't want to rein her. So the, the question is, and I'm going to coin a phrase from, from Bassem, what is the exchange rate? Crass, but what is the exchange rate? How many more thousand Palestinians before they call it a day and say enough is enough? What is the exchange rate? Yeah, what is it? We'd all love to know. Um, it's been a phenomenal conversation with you, Hala. I have a closing question. Um, you give us just your perspective on on what you think is is next for the for the entire conflict. You know, a longer longer kind of outlook. Where do you think we're headed here? Uh, from here, sorry. Um, well, look. One thing this 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 whole thing has 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 made possible is actually shed. Uh, you know. Uh, 
um, put light, shed light again on the Palestinian cause, which, which somehow has been shelved and forgotten. And as always, you know, every few years it comes back to and then they shelve it and it collects dust and everybody forgets about it. Well, hold on. There's a, there's a population, there's a people, there's a people with rights, there's a people who's been forgotten, there's a people who are looking for, 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 for a state of their own. So if anything, this has brought the Palestinian issue, the Palestinian cause back to the arena, you know, to, to the limelight. And I don't think after, after the losses, and we're talking huge losses, I don't think after what's happened in Gaza, I don't think this is something that's going to be allowed to be shelved again. And let's discuss it in a few days, when, uh, sorry, in a few years when the next round happens. Either now this is, and I don't have the answer, but they need to, you know, the world has to help once the, when the dust, once the dust, once they agree on what the exchange rate and they end it and they say enough is enough, which usually they do, enough is enough, Israel. Once that happens, then they have to sit down and figure a way of how to move forth. How do they then move forth? How do they um, give the Palestinians uh, their rights? How do they create the state? How do they allow for it to happen? Um, how do they both take time to 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 mourn, to grieve, to 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 move on, and to down the line because it's going to be very hard to build bridges. But if Israel believes for one second that it's going to eradicate um, Hamas, um, there is a whole generation of children that we're watching now that are under attack in Gaza, relentless attack that are that have lost so much already, that have lost family. There's a generation growing up with anger. They've seen their moms, their dads, their siblings being killed in front of them. This is your new generation. If this is not resolved now, you have another, whatever it takes, one year, five years, 10 years, there's a generation that's coming that will demand to revenge what happened and will demand again to fight for their freedom. So now is a good time to look at all this and see how they call it a day, but they discuss um, a resolution for the Palestinian issue and and how they move forth. Uh, the details is really for, not for us to say or to suggest or to even discuss. Well, we can discuss it. It's for the Palestinians to decide. It's their right. It's, it's about them. It's always been about them. Um, and it's for Israel to, to, to try and to, to understand once and for all that it cannot sustain itself as is the status quo cannot be sustained and it has to make compromises. Well, Hala, it's been a, an amazing conversation, but we have an amazing conversation every day. We just got this one we <laughs> got to share with everybody on video. Um, if you okay. guys have more questions for Hala, you can always, almost always find her in our spaces. Um, yes. She's always receptive to our questions. So Hala, why don't you tell um, our listeners where they can find you and what you're up to and where they can find your work. So I am, um, like Sarah just said, I'm currently, um, well, I'm on, mostly I come late at night and detox at Sarah's, which is a beautiful space where we can all talk, debate, discuss, ask, um, sometimes be sad, sometimes be angry, but it's okay. And, um, and we just, you know, try and support each other, but also try and learn and, um, and, 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 you know, at the end of the day, try and analyze what's happened during the day. And there are lots of different spaces happening. It depends what you want, what you're looking for. Um, I, 
I am. Um, I, I thought I was sort of retiring from journalism, and I have. Um, I'm no longer doing front lines, and I, I, I've done my bit. I've, um, you know, been there, done that, got the T-shirts for it, have six awards on my shelves, um, and um, I've written two books, as it was introduced at the beginning. One was about Hezbollah, and the other one was about Iraq, but it's more... It's rather than doing a political one, I did it my way, you know, with the Iraqi book. It's uh, it's one story that told the story of Iraq, basically, but it's also a personal story. And um, yes, I'm looking to write some more. Um, and I keep on saying I don't want to get involved anymore. I don't want to be engaged anymore. I took time out of Twitter for a very long time. And then October 7 happened and I find myself back fighting. Um, and until this is settled, we will all be fighting together. It, you cannot turn your back. Um, there are other ways, you know, just, you know, if, you, if not on the front line, doesn't mean that, you know, it ends there. You can share your experiences, you can talk about it, but also you can debunk and question and, 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 um, and just keep on, keep on, keep on defending, supporting and talking about it. People should not forget this. We, we must keep on talking about Gaza and Palestine. We, even when the dust settles, we cannot let it, just be forgotten again and shelved until the next round. We have to continue talking about it. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me at Sarah's. Sometimes I float into other spaces just for the fun of it to see what others because it's important. <laughs> and then you come it's right to, uh, to And I, I come right back to you because some of it is like so toxic. I think, oh my God, where is Sarah? I need the detox now. <laughs> so come to our safe spaces where we all get yeah. Yeah, exactly. around. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, yeah. Hala. We will definitely. You're very welcome. You. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Um, thank you for the trust. Women in journalism were more important than you think. So um, <laughs> if you want to support us, you can like, share, and subscribe to the stream. You can also visit ddgeopolitics.com to find out where are we are located on all platforms. You, our Substack is back up and running with various articles and a new editor. So please check that out. And on Sunday, we will be having click, click it. Clarenberg to discuss Ukraine again. Thank you again, guys, and have a good rest of your Thank week. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you.